Come on down to where them tracks cross high street You gonna watch the whole world go insane See the lighters hit the rocks in the bushes Like the stars are coming down like rain Here she comes just a skinny bone And welcome! That was All Hail by The Devil Makes Three That was uh, Dave's choice for this episode uh, I'm here with Dave Hosetter, my... Uh, co-host for the evening. Esteemed co-host. Esteemed co-host. All right. Esteemed co-host for the evening. Uh, it's just the two of us today. So, and we're going to go into deep ecology is the idea. Uh, going knee deep in ecology. And Balls deep. Well, we're, so we're in pretty deep. Apparently balls deep is a Canadian uh, expression. Really? Learn something new every day. <laughs> uh, well, we're going to start with about deep ecology, uh, which is a much more serious uh, discussion than the preamble has apparently done so. Uh, but, Dave, you want to read off the eight principles of deep ecology so our viewers can get a little acquainted with the whole idea? Uh, the eight principles of deep ecology, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> One, the well-being and flourishing of human and non-human life on Earth have value in themselves. Uh, these values are independent of the usefulness of the non-human world for human purposes. Two, richness and diversity of life forms contribute to the realization of these values and are also values in themselves. Humans have no right to reduce this richness and diversity except to satisfy vital human needs. Four, the flourishing of human life and cultures is compatible with a, sustain with a substantial decrease of the human population. The flourishing of non-human life requires such a decrease. Five, present human interference with the non-human world is excessive, and the situation is rapidly worsening. Six, policies must therefore be changed. These policies affect basic economic, technological, and ideological structures. The resulting state of affairs will be deeply different from the present. Seven, the ideological change is mainly that of appreciating life quality rather than adhering to an increasingly higher standard of living. There will be profound awareness of the difference between big and great. 8. Those who subscribe to the foregoing points have an obligation directly or indirectly to try to implement the necessary changes. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, well, those are the 8 principles. I think what's interesting about it, first of all, uh, since this is Wikipedia, I'm sure there's a probably a longer, much more fleshed-out version of this, of thinking about deep ecology generally. Uh, all over the place. And but what I find interesting is really it's all the seven after the first, all seven, the set, from two to eight on the list follow from one, basically, I think. Like as soon as you think that every, every, all life has equal value, then every other one of those after one is, just sort of falls into place almost. Does it say equal value? Well, they all have value in themselves, because they don't actually necessarily make it equal value, but they all, have, they all have intrinsic value, and therefore we must, you know, treat them as such. And I think as soon as you expect to treat everything as it has, if it has some value, ecosystems, if they have value, then a lot of this sort of becomes necessary. Is there space in here for thinking that, because uh, it says, humans have no right to reduce the richness and diversity of 
the uh, eco the world ecosystem as a whole except to satisfy vital human needs. So already there's a there's an issue in the term vital. Hmm. In in what sense? How how much habitat for other creatures can we uh, take over to to justify this uh, ethically in, in in the terms of deep ecology? Because um, I mean, what's vital? Are the arts not vital? Are are the sciences not vital human needs? And then and in what sense? Because the sciences would uh, would I mean at least ideally allow us to be more efficient in terms of not encroaching too much on the non-human uh, world. So, already you, you, we, there's an imperative to, to define what vital means. Yes, true. And I'm sure there's, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of literature on that, but what's interesting is you, it, the three principles, uh, wilderness preservation, human population control, and simple living, makes it seem to imply these guys are kind of the, uh, of the ilk in which, you know, we should go back to being hunter-gatherers. You know, have a million people live on the entire world and be hunter-gatherers, let everything else sort of exist. That sort of seems what they're implying. Mm. Well, the main—I mean, one of the main issues is human population control. Yes. Where do we? Where do we? Like we can, we can in 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 attempting to serve the needs as we see them of the non-human world, we could end up being terrible to the humans who already exist through this idea of population control. Yes. Um, it requires. It seems to require a very tight vice grip by the governing body to uh, even implement the ideal of a deep ecology society, deep ecological society. Yeah, uh, and I think that's. I think that's. Uh, uh, they try to get around that by with their statement, with one of their principles. I believe it is for the flourishing of human life and cultures is compatible with a substantial decrease in human population, which is sort of just an assumption that's kind of thrown in there. You know, like. Some of these, what's interesting about the principles are some of them are conclusions and some of them are presuppositions. And they sort of mix them in and out in the eight principles. But it's, uh, population control by far is one of the more interesting things to me. Uh, or well, actually, it's not actually, it itself isn't interesting. The debate it causes and the, and the f- fights that are created out of it are interesting to me. Because there's a whole camp which think, which, I, which I've come across, which we think that everything we're doing is useless unless you deal with population control, population increases. And then there's another, another whole cramp, which I sort of subscribe to, which basically thinks that human population can, is solving itself. But, but even then, but, but what's funny about that is I'm sure that the deep ecology thinkers, it sounds like they just, it's not that they just want us to stop growing. They want there to be a massive decrease in population. Mm-hmm. Like, they want to see, like, you know, billions of people be wiped off the earth. Or at least... You know, maybe grandfathered off the earth, mm. which is a—it's hard to sort of ethically defend that unless you're really taking this sort of. It depends what quality of life we're talking about. Yes, but if you think that there are way too many people being when encroaching on the planet, we could have the same number of people encroach a lot less on the planet if we all lived much more uh, density and, and less uh, resource use per person, at least in the Western world. Mm-hmm. Uh, average, that is. Average resource use. Right. I mean, I don't know, I sort of feel that to be any type of environmentalist, you have to ascribe to some type of principles of deep ecology. Why? Well, I mean, I suppose just the idea that um, human life requires non-human life. And the, and the, quali- the quality of human life is, in, in some senses, determined by the quality of non-human life in terms of the whole larger ecosystem of the Earth. Right. But that's but you can have that's that that sounds that that can be very anthropocentric, 
Like, mm-hmm. if you only give that, you can be an environmentalist while only giving value to things that have value for for humans because of, you know, mm-hmm. if we don't do enough, we're fucked. Yeah. I mean, that's why I, I think even in, like in terms of a, a secular society, I think it's impossible to have any environmental concern or value or placing value. It's impossible to have a non-anthropocentric view as a secular society mm-hmm. because even if we're thinking of other species having value in and of themselves, unless that comes from some sort of, I guess, greater uh, possible perspective that's beyond the human, which ought to be in some sense spiritual, then all you're saying is that I think, as a human, I think that that species has value because I think it's beautiful and right. it's always coming from a human perspective. And it seems impossible without bringing in some type of, some type of greater type of being or thought beyond the perspective of the species that you belong to, then you're just using your own species-centric terms to define the worth of another, of another species. I mean, which is why I think it makes a, lot, makes a lot of sense that deep ecologists are sort of, like, they turn to sort of pantheists, so that they think of it as also a type of spirituality. But can you not, can you not have reverence for life in and of itself without having any spirituality? In other words, reverence usually implies spirituality, but... I don't know if it's necessary. What's, rev- rev- what's reverence for life, though? It's always a merely human reverence for life. And then it's like, as a human in my individ- in my humanistic terms, that life is also worthy of existing without my encroaching on it. But then, if you think that way, or if you take the idea that anything that's seen through human lens is given value because of humanity, then no matter what you look, however you look at it, you're always doing that. Yeah, exactly. So even with spirituality... No, because that tries to bring everything into a single communion of being, in which you're thinking about just as creatures existing as such and being, as participating in capital B being, and that's what they have. That's what gives them value. You think of sort of a, a I got not really a, potentially a panpsychism, which is that everything has an aspect of consciousness in it. Um, so like every bit of matter or materiality is built of some types of, in, of an inherent type of being which is sort of self-conscious. Because, I mean, the idea is that science, like as, as, a, as, a secular, as a materialist, the idea is that science tells you what the world is. But there's the argument that it doesn't tell you what it is, what it, it tells you about the structure of the world, but not what, the, what, those, what those things are in and of themselves. So if we think about what they are in and of themselves, we think about them being built of bits of... Um, or being built out of consciousness, then it, then it's then it's understandable how things that are seemingly just dead matter can know themselves. So in that sense, there's still a connection between individual beings, which doesn't like there's a more of a fundamental being in, in general that allows you to understand other species in those same terms. But that's not really materialism, right? So I, I don't think I don't like. I don't think there's no way as a as a as a in a secular society to adopt anything beyond an anthropocentric viewpoint because there's nothing verifying or validating anything outside of that viewpoint. So what if what if we were to come? This is going to get kind of weird. But what if we were to come across a second conscious being that could actually speak with us and have discussions, and we learned about what they thought about life in general, consciousness in general. Mm-hmm. Would then we be able to to see things a secular society have uh, 
No, because I think we still think of them as human. Yeah. Right, the, the human definite, like the, the sentient or the, the level of consciousness sentience that we have was the same as ours. That would be, that would be the, the, a categorical human. Uh, okay. So it's, um, it's, you're defining it between conscious or consciousness or people with, con- things with consciousness and things of that. No, because I mean, like obviously animals have consciousness and even trees, like plants, a type of consciousness in terms of, like you could, you, you just, like there, there's, there's science being done that says that plants have Will and sort of and, and and knowledge and terms and can and you can even learn in the sense of growing towards you have vines that grow towards poles without them prior knowing without them obviously having sensed to the naked eye or to to the human eye that they know that the pole is there but just go straight to it. Um, Are you referencing that New York Times article? I'm referencing a New Yorker article. A New Yorker article. Okay. Could you is that online? Could you send that to me so I can post it under this? It might be online. Anyway, I'll look it up. Well, we'll hopefully have a link to it, or at least give me the name, the title of the name, so I can add it to the. Add yeah, yeah. I'm not sure where we were going. Uh, we're going anywhere. What's interesting, I think, about deep ecology and or you know the idea of giving value to anything outside of human use of them, is that when I I've been doing this research for this for this blog series, this blog series about economic growth, and the biggest thing I've come to basically comes down to and sort of where where we sort of end up to some extent is. That growth can only continue if you start adding in new things that count as sort of growth or count towards, you know, if you start monetizing, because money's kind of made up anyways, or like what, you know, count, what counts as money or what can be included in, in money, monetary terms. You can always add, you, can, you know, you can add monetary value to anything. You could just say, you know, I will give you $10 for every conversation you have with me, and now you've monetized social interaction. Mm. Uh, Tim Nash, the stable economist, who sort of we listened to a bit la- last week, has a whole thing about how, to some extent, that's what Facebook and in Twitter are valued for. It's not just the fact of their ability, their use as market research, because that's you know only X valuable. But it also, to some extent, you're also valuing their their the social interaction general, mm. um, or at least it's adding to their value. And the more time people use it, the more value it has. But there's a, I think there's a huge battle between the people, like people who subscribe to deep ecology, or at least partially subscribe to deep ecology, partially subscribe to the idea that that non-human life has value in and of themselves, like inherent value mm-hmm. or intrinsic value, as the as the, uh, the philosophy terms it for, are fight tooth and nail against the idea of adding value of adding monetary value to life, to ecosystems, like that. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of very good reasons, arguments why it's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's imp- almost impossible to really explain how much value something has, or whatever. Uh, like, or how can you really value just what life is? Like, what is the value of a life? Mm-hmm. Like, a like consciousness has inherent value, which cannot be monetized. And there's all these reasonable battles against it. But at the same time, it's also, with the system we have right now, it's a very effective way of protecting, or of, sh- of including that into a, into a larger scheme. That sort of protects it more. Like, do you, I think there's a conscious battle in environmentalism right now about whether or not putting value on, by putting monetary value on trees and everything like that is a good or bad idea. You mean like the way we would put a value on a human life? Like, if someone goes missing, we spend money to find them. Like, what do you mean? Like, like a tree? Like you have to pay money to cut it down? Yes. 
like you know, like this ecosystem hack, like you know, like people try are doing it. All. There's tons of research on like trying to like be like this ecosystem is it provides this amount of money and ecosystem services. Mm-hmm. You have bees, like bees provide this amount of uh, of mo- add this amount of the money to the economy. So theoretically, you know, killing any bee would cost you extra money if you want to do that. But then, of course, the big concern then is like, so you're saying that like if I had enough money, I could buy every tree on the earth and cut them all down. Mm-hmm. It's like oh, like you like that's a. The, it, like that logically follows. Mm-hmm. It's obviously insane. It would ruin everything, but it logically follows. Yeah. So there's this there's this weird battle amongst in, inside environmentalism. I mean, what does that? What purpose does that serve? Adding value to giving monetary value to like you just have to pay. Like, what is that supposed to do? Uh, well, it, theoretically, the idea with that would be that it would it would it would stop having things be externalities, basically. It would bring them into the system, which, you know, everyone's like a corrupt system. If Darren was here, he'd, I'm sure you'd have a 25-minute rant about how terrible that would be. But it's a bit, but that's the idea, right? It's the idea is that right now, if you want to build something on your lot, and you cut down 15 trees to build that something, and then you build it and you sell it, and you sell it for extra money, the trees had no value. Whereas if every tree had X amount of value, it would be entered into the system. It's sort of like... A lot of people are cool with putting a price on carbon, and this is sort of an extension of that. It, but it, it, but it, I think there's an inherent dislike of that inside, not everyone, but inside a vast percentage of people, which I think well, comes from that, the I mean, people that, that could be linked in with as long as some, as long as some areas and some trees or, or some ecosystems are still protected outright. Like, you can combine that. Mm. Like, you wouldn't have to say just that everything is fair game as long as you pay a certain price. Right. Or you could price things so high that it would be literally impossible to do it. Mm. For sure. And I think, I think, that's, I think that's, that's definitely, if you, know, if you talk to an economist who wouldn't do this, I'm sure that's how they would go about it. I'm sure they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't say everything as price, but it's, it's, it's a way to sort of bring things into the system. But I, think, but I think the reaction against it, it comes from the fact that... Because they want to say that it has a spiritual value. Exactly. But, yeah. I mean, there's, but there's already a, a whole problem of human lives don't even have equal value. Right. Like we, like that's not even something we've like we, we we say that humans individually have have equal inherent value in and of themselves, but that's simply not the case, or we don't act as if that's the case. Mm. Well, and from an economic standpoint, it isn't the case. No. There's an absolutely no. There's just no way around it. Yeah. And aside from that, there's actually a, mo- a movie coming out soon that is on the. I think it's the Bhopal disaster. It's Prince Bhopal, where basically. It was a a chemical company which has this crazy name. All these these, these chemical com- all the companies that are just often but not all but a bunch of the chemical companies that are doing terrible terrible things really got to think of having a less insanely evil sounding name. <laughs> like I forget the exact name of the company. I think it's Carbide. I think is the name. Mm-hmm. Something similar like Carbide is the name of this company that just did it. What did that that no, I'm gonna tell you? And it just sounds evil from the beginning. I think it was Carbide Chemicals. Anyways, there was this huge disaster in Bobo. Where basically they had, in the middle of this massive city, they had this really big factory. Mm-hmm. And it, they just were sort of lax on every, all, the, all the information. They were sort of going around. They sort of had, they ignored warning signs. And then eventually, I don't know if it was cyanide or something like cyanide, just got released into the, got released into the town and killed, I think it was 10,000 people. Mm-hmm. Just like, just devastated this town. And in the lawsuit that followed up against it, Carbide or whatever carb, something's a carbide. Chemicals had to pay a hundred dollars per person. Wow, a hundred dollars to who? The relatives of the dead people. A hundred dollars. A hundred dollars. Where's Bhopal? Uh, India. Yeah. But what's fucked is that they would even still think of that in purely economic terms, in the sense that like they will pay the minimum they have to pay. You know, like like it's the whole absurd 
removal you have as, as an international company from mm. where you're actually working, as if these are just contingencies and just figures on a chart. They can say, oh, well, this, this occurred, now we have to pay these damages. You know, like you've blown up someone's... Like you, like you ruined someone's property or something. Yeah, but that's the that's yeah exactly. Well, and it's it was funny because we were talking about someone asked what a B corp was, and the answer is like, well, it removes the uh, necessity to make as much money as possible, and then just like have a chuckle after that, just because of the idea that like how insane that sort of is. You know, it's 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 like I think I don't know if it was Darren or someone else was describing was describing companies. It might have been Tom Rand was describing companies as uh, having a prime directive, and their prime directive was to make money and. Mm-hmm. And like that's exactly what they did here. You know, they they did absolutely everything they did to make money, and they tried to pay as little money as possible. And the Bobble disaster was just just an absolutely insane, insane destruction of of people. And is there it was interesting? Is 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 there absolutely no way to value the destruction of lives that it caused? Absolutely no way. They have, and I think that's I think that's the inherent negativity you get around people trying to put values on on nature or on on any life at all because of things like this. Because you get you know, as soon as you do that, then it's like, oh, we can kill 10,000 people and harm hundreds of thousands more. And, you know, it's not going to cost us that much. And if that's the right business decision to make, and that's the right business decision to make, mm-hmm. which is absolutely insane. And uh, Union Carbide is actually a full name, which is just the, sounds the most evil. Maybe, maybe, maybe not as much. No, maybe, maybe it's no Blackwater, I guess. But I think that's what, I think what it, what it comes to is, comes down to is that I think there is actually inherently in people this idea that life has value. And I think that's sort of the feeling you get from deep culture. And then you can remove yourself from it. And it's sort of all of human history has been removing oneself from, removing your humans from nature to some extent. And pulling ourselves further and further away from sort of seeing nature as nature. And seeing ourselves in nature. Yeah. I mean, guys, going back to what I was saying, I think to be a secular environmentalist, you have to be an anthropocentric environmentalist Mm. and understand that everything that you care about in terms of the environment is solely to protect human disaster and solely to protect other animals, other species, because we find them beautiful and it hurts our psyches so to speak, or our emotional lives to, to, under, to know that we've destroyed all these other species. So it, it, requi- it requires a greater, a, greater, a greater assertion of unity to place inherent value in life in general. So, I mean, I think that if you're asserting that all human life has inherent value, no matter what human you're talking about, then if you don't extend that to other species in life in general, then you're being disingenuous. And then so there's the reason why deep ecology to some extent, I feel, has to play an inherent role in an environmentalism that is also a humanism. Like, if it, unless, it, unless it's a, a completely cynical environmentalism and just self-serving environmentalism that doesn't even place equal life individual humans, then you need, some, you need to adopt some type of, of deep ecology or some type of unification or unifying connection in, like, the web of all life, so to speak. Like, you can, there can be people who do very good things for the environment, but unless they, like, they either have to think that it's every man for themselves, and they're only doing this to protect whatever limited idea they have of their responsibility to their own lineage, or else they adopt a whole, a whole holistic view of the inherent ethical integrity of all living things, mm. and thus ecosystems, and thus inanimate nature. Right. I think there's a, well, we said that put an interesting thought, which doesn't exactly follow, but it follows, I think, in, a, in, a, in some way. So bear with me. I was at a Tom Rand talk, I think it was last week, or two weeks ago. I think it was 
Yeah. Book launch, Waking the Frog. And Waking he was the Frog. Waking the Frog. It's a great name for a book. It's all about the idea that, you know, that whole thing about if you put a frog in, in water and in boiling water, it'll jump out. But if you put it in regular water and slowly heat up the temperature, you can boil the frog because you'll never realize. But anyways, he, but in that talk he was giving, he brought up something that actually reminded me a lot of Nate Silver, who is the who's a statistician, who's rose to fame recently, which then I think leads to this. Which basically was that the thing that Tom Rand was saying was that you should avoid or at least not rely on the idea that specificity implied more accuracy. So you're saying it was like, specificity? Yeah. So saying that, like, saying that, you know, we're going to get two degrees global warming by 2045, and that will cause this, this, and this, and all these bad things will happen. And then, you know, by 2030, we'll, you know, we'll get something else happen, 2070, blah, blah, blah. That can be as specific as you want, but it's actually more accurate to say we don't entirely know. This is sort of how close we can get, or something to get, and leave it at that. But that um, doesn't move people. That doesn't, doesn't move people necessarily. But what, but the point that I find interesting about it is that that very much mirrors what Nate Silver was saying in in his book that I read, Signal the Noise, mm-hmm. which was basically all about Bayesian theory and Bayesian st- statistics. Which also sort of has the idea that you should sort of try to stay out of specific numbers and just give feelings, and that's kind of like the, where you should go to keep things most accurate. Mm-hmm. And that by adding specificity, you actually are more likely to be wrong, or you're, you're actually getting more wrong the more specific you get. Mm-hmm. And how I think it connects to this discussion we're having now is the idea that if people sort of accept the idea that we know that there's value in nature and value in, na- in, na- in a specific way, but refuse to sort of get sucked into the trap of explaining why, mm-hmm. you could end up being more accurate than if you sort of have to try to get down to why. Because mm-hmm. we don't know why in many ways. Mm-hmm. Like, you can come up with theories, but, you know, if we, like, we don't understand consciousness really well enough to really state to the extent of which consciousness exists in other beings. Like, we have many, we know a lot about it, but I don't know if we really could say, like, you know, pigs have 78% of the consciousness that we have. Because mm. human consciousness feels very much like it's either an on or off thing. It feels like mm. I'm, well, it feels like either you're conscious or you're an automaton. Sort of, sort of the idea of, like, when you go blackout drunk. Well, I mean, I don't know, like, like I think there are things that you can remember, or unless you could suggest that it's po- impossible to remember things that you're doing when you were doing them automatically. But there are, th- there are things that we do daily automatically. And so I think we fluctuate between levels of consciousness mm. even, yeah, within, for sure. even within a single day or constantly. Right. That makes sense. But, like, but, what you, yeah, but, but even then, like, how could you... Like, I don't think we understand... I don't know if you understand... Like, and then, is the parts of being more conscious more valuable than the unconscious parts? Very likely. But then again... More valuable in what sense? Well, again, that's another question. And what I'm just trying to get at is the idea that perhaps it's actually better and smarter and more real and more accurate as human as humans to accept that we sort of it goes honestly, it's funny about it is it ends up being sounding a little spiritual, but I don't think it necessarily has to be. But except we don't understand everything. Mm-hmm. And to sort of go on the knowledge that go on the knowledge that we, we know as much as we know and as far as we can say. You know, I don't want to say faith, but you know, that's the idea. Mm-hmm. Except that we have some understanding of some things. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a there's an interesting discu- like I don't know whether how how strongly that connects to the whole you know back into sort of the other ways and or if there's a reason why those things get beyond the fact that it's just better humans to stop relying on specificity to think that that's actually important or that you know it goes down to the idea that if whether or not humans should how humans should see themselves 
should we see ourselves as you know as the as as the as the way for the universe to know itself, which is arguably the the, the biggest praise humanity could give itself? Well, sort of absurd too. Like as if a dog doesn't really have know itself at all. You know, like what does the dog like, know? The universe, like through life. Well, I mean, it knows relatively as much as we do. Like, a dog knows its universe, just like we know our universe. Right. Just like something else knows, like if you posit greater beings than humans, just like they know their universe, just like ants know theirs. So, even before humans and so-called human consciousness, the consciousness revolution, life in general, even motion, like what is it for, what is it for, like the Big Bang to occur without anything saying that's the Big Bang, that's occurring. You know, there's still motion, there's still matter, there's still things playing out. And in that sense, there's still intentionality. There's still aboutness. So if there's intentionality, then you have to think of a type of consciousness. I feel as though it's impossible to even think of the Big Bang, or anything for that matter, outside of the perspective of consciousness. Because then you're, like, if you're thinking about inert matter, you're still thinking about something. Like, you're thinking as if, you're thinking of, 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 of a rock existing with no humans, with nothing to observe it. You're still thinking of the rock existing. So it's impossible to think of anything even outside of the perspective of consciousness. So if we think of the Big Bang, we already have to assert a type of prior intentionality or aboutness in that very, say, non-sentient or you'd have to say it was sentient occurrence. I mean, I feel like, like you could think about trying to... Are you going to say something? No. You think about trying to understand why we care about life that's not human. Like, you could say that we just do and we don't understand it and that's that. Right. But you can also attempt to understand it, it like, if you're positing the ineffable as an explanation. I think you can you can discuss the ineffable through contradictory language in the sense that which is language that negates itself even as it's forming itself. So you'd say that meaning inheres in unmeaning, and that's sort of how you understand the larger world outside of human language and human logic and human understanding. Through a dichotomy that can't be solved. <laughs> through oxymorons, basically. Uh, well, not necessarily oxymoronic, but, I mean, I guess, just the sense that... Because if you think about not being able to understand a, a dog beyond the position of, of human consciousness, mm-hmm. then any attempt at that is always a negation of itself as it's moving, right? Because the language, human language is always human language. So there's potentially a type of way of understanding the ineffable with language that is negating itself, which potentially is a type of faith. Right. I think, I think that's the thing about lots of deep philosophical thinking is that at some point you end up sounding so much like theology that there's a Severe overlap. Although a lot of people would also argue, I'm sure, vehemently against that. But well, a lot of philosophy is unanswerable questions, and you know whether or not you can truly know what a you know what dog is thinking. You excavate the unanswerability. Right. All right. Well, why don't you just take what you just said and, and wrap up your thoughts for the day? Then I think deep ecology is necessary for understanding environmentalism, but it has a severe danger of just of falling into a type of. Uh, vehement, domineering, all-too-self-righteous expression. Mm. And then so would, would would attempt to force what they see, what, what a deep ecologist might see, as the will of nature onto onto humans. Mm. And so I think there's, there's a sort of a false dichotomy being built between what humans have become and what nature should be. So, I mean, I think, I think you, have to, you have to incorporate deep ecology into your environmentalist understanding if you're going to be not a purely self-serving environment. But the use of deep ecology itself has problems of being sort of overbearing mm. or knowing, thinking that it knows too much. Yeah, I think, well, I think for me the, the big question, I think the reason why deep ecology, as much as it's an interesting thought process... We'll never really see a light of day beyond that. 
unless we somehow, through some crazy event, end up having a massive reduction in population, and the people decide to embrace it and live from, from there on out. Mm. But the question inherently, in my mind, is who are you to decide this? Mm. Who are we to decide, you know, that the population needs, that we need to tell someone not have an extra child? Like, who are we to snuff out any life whatsoever? Whether or not, like, I'm, like, improving how we live now and making more with the universe, I understand. But the ethics of, of ecology require a sort of redu reduction of ethics on other fronts to make it actionable. Like, I can't go and say, all right, everyone who wants to have another child, you can't do that because we, we need to get down to two, mil two billion people. Which is my biggest thing, which is why I, I find all discussion of population control just so useless because any world in which you're telling people not to have not to do something or restricting them in that kind of way you're denying people a too fundamental of a right or you're just saying you have to kill a whole bunch of people which is obviously even worse like there's no mm. there's no I wrote to, I was, recently I wrote something uh, back in response to the person about sort of this there's that whole similar deep college you get this whole technophile set of environmentalists who want to live in bubbles of super highly done well done machines basically uh, and Which, like, oh, sorry. I was going to say, like, there's a whole danger of falling into lifeboat ethics. Right. In those senses, like those with the technology do, and those without suffer. Yes, exactly. And I, and I think that's the problem with deep ecology is that if you personally want to not harm anyone, live the rest of life, that's that's cool. But to force a life like that on everyone else, and to demand that population. Can, does not continue is putting a, a demand on humanity and other humans that you have no right to do which I think is the like you're telling them they can't self-actualize basically or they have to self-actualize in the way that you personally think is is necessary and regardless of really how, how fact your back fact-based your opinion is it's still incredibly incredibly difficult ethical situation to be in, to, to put yourself in and put humanity in well, essentially, you would. I feel like you'd have to embrace a type of morality over ethics. Mm. You you impose rules instead of trying to think about ethics as a larger scheme. Yeah. So I don't know if we really have a wrap up or a thought. I have my wrap. Yeah, you get a good wrap up. It's true. So I'll try to wrap something up here. I don't. I think I think deep ecology is one of those things that is perhaps my wrap up should have been what I said a while ago, which is the idea that deep ecology I think is valuable in the idea that we should really actually see every living thing as having inherent value. I think that's that is a uh, that is the thing I think, but once you get beyond that, you get into some very murky waters and some very difficult decisions, which no single human can really have can enforce on the rest of the world. If you disagree, uh, send us a comment. Unless and... there's a universal revolution in consciousness, right? Yes. So if you want to start that, by all means, go for it, world. But anyways, uh, you wanna you wanna let the, say the name of the song? Do we play that? Yes. Yeah, so here is "All Hail" by The Devil Makes Three. Play us out. Come on down to where them tracks cross High Street. You're going to watch the whole world go insane. See the lighters hit the rocks in the bushes like the stars are coming down like rain. 